Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, comrades. I'm sorry for this episode being late. I've been going through some really hard stuff right now. You see, I had a heart attack. Stress-induced one together with my unhealthy lifestyle really got a catch-up on me, and then I had another one, and uh, had to spend some time in the hospital, and, um, well, gotta have a surgery soon. Another one, so to speak. But yeah, my heart's acting up, and like someone on the Twitter post that I have a body of a 60-year-old, so I'm in a pretty grim state. Had to pay for my first surgery, had to pay for all the bills that, well, while I was in the United States, racked up because the guy I was renting my apartment to, well, wasn't able to pay the bills, so that's bad as well, and... And yeah, in general, monetary troubles plus massive health troubles, which don't help when solving monetary troubles. Thankfully, thankfully, I always take paying my editor, Anata, as the first priority so the shows can come out, but... Uh, uh, first and foremost, I want to give a special thanks to everyone who's on Patreon and who donated us through PayPal, because without you guys, I'd be dead right now. Literally dead. Uh, not even in um, the particle sense, it's just that it's been a bad, bad thing in my life that's just been happening. However, I will be in Boston again in the early October... One thing that happened, which I'm still in debt to, is that I talked to a listener of mine who visited me in Riga, and he purchased the tickets to me there and back from Riga to Boston uh, so that I can get to the Harvard conference, the sound education part two this year, and I'm yet to pay him back. I spoke about installments, but then the money went on staying alive, which I'm sorry of, and I hope you are listening to this, and I hope that I will be able to do everything right, but yeah. My debt's huge, I'm nearly dead, uh, but I'm slowly pushing back, so I'm gonna try to make sure that the episodes come out in time, and I'm sorry, patrons, but I will need to push out as many episodes as I can, despite my health conditions, because you literally pay my salary. And in this dreadful situation, dreadful situation that I am in, and if you can't help, please do, I love all of you. It's just that when you do dangerous stuff, dangerous stuff just keeps happening. I have decided to make this one episode special, I have decided to make it about the RLC. Well, you might say that it does not exist anymore, which would be kinda true, 
But it's the result of a social experiment of uh, trying to change the nature that Stalinists did in 1920s, when Stalin was in control of that area and continued up until 1960s, and it was sort of an exploration of a colonialism of the Soviet Union. And the danger is in not the fact that the world's fourth largest lake has almost dried up, as it was before the RLC. The danger lies in what's in it. So, in my own time of peril and struggle and generally feeling useless and miserable and not knowing what to do with my life and again this is the period where i where i can tell you that i'll be in boston from the 8th of october and if you can help me please do because i do pay my editor and i am in massive debt at this point by Latvian standards around three thousand euros if you can't help, please do, but I just couldn't think about anything else but other terrible things that might happen, and I wanted to do this in the style of our older episodes, because Stalin is coming, I've had a lot of time to read about him while I was in the hospital, and this is a part of it. This episode was a part of the Stalin series, before I read about what's happening there right now, and why is it so dangerous. I read reports, and I'm going to be using a lot of reports from BBC, from The Guardian, from the OZY, and from ThoughtCo, and from the CSS blog from the Central Illusion Studies Society, where there is a nice article by Ricardo Cusciola. Cucciola? I don't know, he's an Italian probably. I gathered enough materials, because on its own the RLC was interesting, but what's happening there now is... Is something that puts all of this thing in a somewhat um, post-apocalyptic perspective. So I hope that you enjoy this show. Our next episode, which is going to be released just in a few days from now on Sunday, is going to be the part two with my interview with the Atomic Hobo podcast. And then uh, I'm going to try to squeeze on the fourth and early one, because I need to release four episodes this month, or I'll just have nothing to eat next one. But yeah. Yeah, guys, if you can, please PayPal me, and please contact me and help me out. I was in the hospital, and I hope that you will enjoy this. And it's kind of like from the SCP Foundation files. It's a bit scary, it's a bit dangerous, it's a bit something that you wouldn't expect. However, I think that this show will teach us something new, and that you'd understand that um, when men try to fix nature, even though it does not need fixing, that is when the danger comes in from. That is when we make our worst mistakes. So I'm sorry for this long intro, and thanks everyone on Patreon, and Podjotkovsky's book has been waiting for me for a long time too, but I just can't get rid of my health problems, and my greatest desire is to get my life back in order, which I shall do. But for now, let us talk about the RLC. So, how did the fourth largest lake on the planet Earth become what it is today, and why we should care about it? Oh, and also, before I start second part, huge thank you to everyone who sent me emails with questions and everything. I'm just slightly too weak to respond to all of them, and a lot of people have offered their help and their questions, and I should do a lot of more things about this, but I, I simply can't, because it's just too tiring at this point. I'll get back to it, but I'm gonna get a bit crazy for me for this month, but I hope that I'll make it in next month. However, it's the RLC that we're here to discuss, and... Um, it's a crazy thing. See, the RLC was once the fourth largest lake in the world, and it produced thousands of tons of fish for the local economy annually. Since the 1960s, however, the RLC has been sinking, and it all started in the 1920s. This is the story of Uzbekistan, one of the stands. 
The history of modern Uzbekistan is totally linked with Russian colonialism and the evolution of the Soviet system. This Central Asian territory was the last frontier of the Russian imperialism before becoming Soviet periphery par excellence. In the 1860s, the Russian Empire expanded towards Transoxiania in order to compete with British influence in the region. It's the second great game, again, which I owe you the part two of. And they wanted to do this to create a captive market for Russian manufacturers, develop trade, and secure a source of cotton. Indeed, since the imperial era, this latter element, the cotton, once characteristic of the history of modern industry, has been the pivot on which center-periphery relations were based in, political, economic, military, and social terms, defining the colonial ties between Moscow and Tashkent. This was a relationship that in different forms would last until 1991. Now, obviously, the use of the colonial label is ambiguous when related to a system that was ideologically founded in the values of internationalism and anti-imperialism, and was employing its so-called colonies to promote the colonization abroad and the compatibility between socialism and Muslim societies. This attitude clearly emerged in the Congress of Peoples of the East held in Baku in 1920 in the post-war era, when Tashkent, the city of so-called Friendship of Peoples was promoted as a progressivist symbol of Soviet modernity for the emerging Third World. Nonetheless, despite numerous doubts that emerged in the definition of Soviet colonialism to core, evident features and dynamics typical of colonial systems are identifiable even in Soviet Central Asia, where Moscow's authority was enforced over peoples and territories, and fundamental decisions, which, at times tragic, results were taken from and the interests of the center. The Russian and larger Soviet Empire has often been associated with internal colonialism, a concept that refers to Russia as a self-colonializing political entity. And yeah, by the way, they had a monument to this friendship of the peoples in Tashkent. It was relocated outside in the city in 2008. It depicts a great Russian man giving food to a poorer Uzbekistani woman surrounded by children. It's this condescending, colonizing attitude that you see always. Soviet Empire did not see themselves as equals, they saw themselves as the center colonizing the outskirts. Which is an important nuance, which is why The Great Game 2 is a very interesting thing to discuss. However, however, this colonial thing, the use of this category, can be misleading when considering the territorial size of the Russian multi-ethnic state. The differences between these regions in terms of demography, culture, and geography, and inequalities between areas within a nation-state that segregate the periphery. Besides the territorial continuity between the center and the periphery of the land-based Russian Empire, the differences between St. Petersburg and Tashkent can remind someone of those between London and Calcutta. Therefore, other categories better suit the state of Russian Turkestan, where phenomena of settler colonialism are detectable, with the center favoring the large-scale immigration of Russian and mostly other Slav settlers to replace the indigenous population in many posts in the party and state apparatus, the cities and the industries, while marginalizing the local peoples and rural areas. This trend favored the Russification, annihilation or incorporation of local identities, and generally the enforcement of exogenous domination. This is also what happened in the Baltics. These influxes would be effective until the 1930s during Stalin's revolution from above. The mass evacuations in 1941 to 1943, the Virgin Lands campaign in Kazakhstan, which are we going to talk about because that directly influenced the RLC, and the reconstruction of Tashkent in the late 1960s. To a great extent, Soviet Uzbekistan was also a context of surrogate colonialism, inasmuch as during the imperial period, the center enforced the settlement of other non-native minorities, such as Ukrainians, Poles, and Armenians, and it promoted the settlement of friendship brigades. 
It's a nice way to say Gestapo, but it's friendship brigades. During the post-earthquake reconstruction of Tashkent and deported so-called punished people, such as Chechens, Crimean Tatars, and Koreans, into Central Asia during wartime. Indeed, the war was not just a period of the symbolic inclusion of the Uzbeks into the front against the common fascist enemy, but also a dramatic episode of the demographic reshuffle that created greater divergences between the local and alien, traditional and modern, and the rural and urban populations. Another thing that matters to us for that I'll see, because Uzbekistan borders it, is that this exploitation colonialism of natural resources in Soviet Uzbekistan and of local populations, proletarized and marginalized in rural areas where an intensive cotton monoculture was imposed during collectivization. We shall talk about cotton more. This extractive system exploited the natural resources of the so-called backward periphery while defining the closed mercantilist Soviet economy where Uzbekistan was supplying raw materials to the center, mostly cotton, and re-importing them as finished products and manufacturers transformed into the center. The outcome of the Soviet inter-republic division of labor and the specialization of regions was inevitably economic dependence. Moreover, cases of ecological imperialism were evident in relation of the conquest of the desert through irrigation, the significant shifts in the ecology of the colonized areas, and the many pathogens related to imposition of the cotton monoculture as a factor of exposure. This shall come into action very soon. Cotton is important in this story, so is the imposition of everything, so is the tales of those people. Imagine this, you're living as a proud descendant of the Mongol state, and there's one of those kind of Akkonyu or Kwarakonyu territories. Caspian Sea and RLC are your favorites, and if you would like Google up RLC's slow decline over the years, you will see that it has declined, even though lately they're trying to take some of it back, because the damage Soviets did was truly terrible. And right now, they have an extra incentive to build it back. We'll get to that later in the study, but just so you know, the Soviets came, treated them as a colony and manage to defeat nature. This is the story of what happens when you allow a major power to do just that. This is the story that happens when you decide that even nature cannot stand in your way, that even nature needs to pay the price so that Uncle Joe can get what he wants. So, the basic story goes like this, that uh, in the 1920s, the USSR, under direct commands of Stalin, who was just a meager general secretary at the time, turned lands of the Uzbek SSSR into cotton plantations and ordered the construction of irrigation canals to provide water to the crops in the middle of the plateau of the region. These hand-dug, often by gulag people, you know, forced labor, slave labor basically, Irrigation canals moved water from the Anodarya and Sirdarya rivers, which were the rivers that fed the freshwater Aral Sea. Until the 1960s, the system of canals, rivers, and the Aral Sea were fairly stable. However, in the 1960s, the USSR decided to expand the canal system and drain more water from the rivers that fed the Aral Sea. Thus, in the 60s, the Aral Sea began shrinking quite rapidly. By 1987, the single sea dried up enough to create the northern lake and the southern lake. In 2002, the southern lake shrunk and dried up and became the eastern lake and a western lake. In 2014, the eastern lake completely evaporated and disappeared. The Soviet Union regarded the cotton crops as far more valuable than the RLC fishing economy, which had once been the backbone of the regional economy. Today you can visit former coastal towns and villages and see long abandoned piers, arbors and boats. Prior to the evaporation of the lake, the RLC produced about 20,000 to 40,000 tons of fish a year. 
This was reduced to a low of 1,000 tons of fish a year at the height of the crisis, but, thankfully, things are now headed in a positive direction. However, it might not be as positive as you'll see later. In 1991, the USSR was disbanded, as you know, and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan became home to the vanishing RLC. Since then, Kazakhstan has been working to resuscitate the RLC. The first innovation that helped save part of the RLC fishing industry was Kazakhstan's construction of the Kok Aral Dam on the southern shore of the Northern Lake, thanks to the support from the World Bank. This dam has caused the Northern Lake to grow by 20% since 2005. The second innovation has been the construction of a Komushobosh, fish hatchery at the northern lake, where they raise and stock the northern RLC with sturgeon, crab, and flounder. The hatchery was built with a grant from Israel. Predictions are that the northern lake of the RLC could soon produce 10 to 12,000 tons of fish a year, thanks to those two major innovations. However, the damming of the northern lake in 2005, the fate of the southern two lakes was nearly sealed in the autonomous Uzbek region of Karakalpastan will continue to suffer as the western lake continues to vanish. Soviet leaders felt the RLC was unneeded since the water that flowed in basically evaporated with nowhere to go. Scientists believe that the RLC was formed about 5.5 million years ago when geologic uplift prevented the two rivers from flowing to their final destinations. Nonetheless, cotton continues to be grown in the now independent country of Uzbekistan, where the country comes to a standstill, and nearly every citizen is forced to volunteer each year during the cotton harvest season. The huge, dried-up lake bed is a source of disease causing dust that blows throughout the region. The dried remnants of the lake contain not only salt and minerals, but also pesticides like DDT that were once used in huge quantities by the Soviet Union. Additionally, the Soviet Union once had a biological weapons testing facility on one of the lakes within the RLC. Although now closed, the chemicals used at the facility helped to make the destruction of RLC one of the great environmental catastrophes of the human history. Today, what was once the fourth largest lake on the planet now is just a dust ball. But we are here to talk about the danger. See, on the Kazakh-Uzbek border, surrounded by miles of toxic desert, lies an island. Or at least something that used to be an island. Vazarajdinje, or Resurrection, Resurrection Island, was once home to a vibrant fishing village fringed by turquoise lagoons back when the RLC was the fourth largest in the world and abundant with fish. But after years of abuse by the Soviets, the waters have receded and the sea has turned to dust. The rivers that fed it were diverged to irrigate cotton fields. More and more of cotton, monocultures. There's a study about monocultures out there reading this enforced labor or unfree labor by Peter Kolchin when he compares the slaves to the serfs and yeah, monocultures do that to you. Anyway, uh, the rivers that fed it were diverted to irrigate cotton fields. Today a layer of salty sand riddled with cancerogenic pesticides, the DDT, is all that remains of the ancient oasis. Ozrogenia Island, Resurrection Island, is a place where the mercury regularly hits 60 Celsius or 140 Fahrenheit in the sandy soil and where the only signs of life are the skeletons of desiccated trees and camels shading under giant stranded boats. Now, Resurrection has swallowed up so much of the sea that it's swelled to ten times its original size and it's connected to the mainland by a peninsula. But it's thanks to another Soviet project that it's one of the deadliest places on the planet. From the 1970s, the island has been implicated in a number of sinister incidents. In 1971, a young scientist fell ill after a research vessel, the Lev Berg, strayed into a brownish haze. Days later, she was diagnosed with smallpox. Mysteriously, she had already been vaccinated against the disease. 
Though she recovered, the outbreak went to infect a further nine people back in her hometown, three of whom died. One of these was her younger brother. A year later, the corpses of two missing fishermen were found nearby, drifting in their boats. It's thought that they had caught the plague. The plague. Yes, THE plague. Not long afterwards, locals started landing whole nets of dead fish. No one knows why. Then in May 1988, 50,000 saiga antelope, which had been grazing on a nearby steppe, dropped dead in the space of an hour. The island's secrets have endured, partly because it isn't the kind of place where you can just turn up. Resurrection, or Vozrazhdenie, was abandoned in the 1990s, there have only been a handful of exhibitions. And here I come uh, to a story from BBC, who went there. Nick Middleton, a journalist and geographer from Oxford University, filmed a documentary there back in 2005. Quote, I was aware of what went on, so we got a hold of the guy who used to work for the British military, and he came to give the crew a briefing about the sorts of things we might find, he said. He scared the pants at me, to be honest. The expert was Dave Butler, who ended up going with them. There was a lot that could have gone wrong, he says. As a precaution, Butler put the entire team on antibiotics starting the week before. As a matter of necessity, they wore gas masks with high-tech air filters, thick rubber boots, and full white forensic-style suits from whom they arrived. They were not being paranoid. Aerial photographs taken by the CIA in 1962 revealed that while other islands had piers and fish-packing huts, this one had a rifle range, barracks, and a parade ground. But that wasn't even half of it. There were also research buildings, animal pens, and an open-air testing site. The island had turned into a military base of the most dangerous kind that was a bioweapons testing facility. The project was a total secret, not even marked on Soviet maps, but those in the know called it Aralsk 7. Just like Kurilsk 117 is the secret location where the new Moscow shall be found, if Putin shall ever fall. Over the years, the site flourished into a living nightmare, where anthrax, smallpox, and the plague hung in great clouds over the land, and exotic diseases just tularemia, brucellosis, and typhus rained down and seeped into the sandy soil. The island was isolated enough that it wasn't discovered until the 19th century, making it a perfect place to hide from the prying guys of Western intelligence. Failing that, the surrounding sea made it a convenient natural moat. These are the factors that led to it being chosen as the final resting place for the largest anthrax stockpile in human history. Its origins remain obscure, but it's possible that the deadly cache was manufactured in Compound 19, a facility near the Russian city of Sverdlovsk, now Yekaterinburg. Aralsk 7 was part of the bioweapons program on an industrial scale, one that employed over 50,000 people at 52 production facilities across the Soviet state. Anthrax was produced in huge fermenting vats, tenderly neutered as though they were growing beer. In 1998, nine years after an anthrax leak at Compound 19 led to the deaths of at least 105 people, the Soviets finally decided to get rid of the cash. Huge vats of anthrax spores were mixed with bleach and transported to the port town of Aralsk on the shores of the Aral Sea, which is now 16 miles or 25 kilometers inland where they were loaded into barges and transported to resurrection. Some 100 to 200 tons of anthrax slurry was hastily damped in pits and forgotten. Most of the time, anthrax bacteria live as spores in an active form with extreme survival skills. They'll shrug off pretty much anything, anything, and I have to emphasize this, anything you care to throw at them. From baths of noxious disinfectants 
to being roasted for up to two minutes at 180 C, which is 356 Fahrenheit. When they're buried in the ground, the spores can survive for hundreds of years. In one case, they were recovered from an archaeological dig at the ruins of a medieval hospital in Scotland, along with the several hundred years old remains of the lime they tried to kill them with. More recently, a 12-year-old boy died after being overcome by anthrax that they had been lurking in the far north of Russia. The outbreak hospitalized 72 people from the Matic Ninets tribe, including 41 children and thousands of reindeer perished. It is thought to have started when a heatwave thawed the carcass of a reindeer that was at least 75 years old. As you might expect, the Soviet efforts at Vorozhenia weren't nearly enough. Years after the USSR's collapse in the wake of attacks in Tokyo and relations with an extensive bioactive program in Iraq, fears were mounting about the prospect of terrorists of rogue governments getting their hands on any weaponized pathogens. So the US government sent teams of specialists to do some tests. And here I would like to interject and remind you of the Skripal case. This is not theory anymore. The bioweapons are real, they're open, and they are in the midst of an ecological catastrophe. This might sound like fallout to you, but that's because it is. Sometimes, there is nothing funny about my episodes. The precise location of the anthrax cache was never disclosed. But as it turns out, this wasn't a problem. The pits were so enormous they were clearly visible, in photos taken from space. Viable spores were found in several soil samples in the United States pledged $6 million for a project to clean the place up. This involved a deep trench dug next to the pits, some plastic lining, and thousands of kilograms of powerful powder bleach. All the team had to do was move several tons of contaminated soil into the trench, in 50 Celsius, 122 Fahrenheit heat, while wearing full protective suits. In all, 100 local workers were hired and the project took 4 months to complete. It worked. After stewing for 6 days with the powder bleach, the spores were gone. But that's not quite the end of the story. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, 
Half a century of open-air testing has left the entire island contaminated. Not just the test site, but all over. Oh, there will still be anthrax there, no problem, says Les Bailey, an international expert on anthrax from Cardiff University. He spent a decade working at the UK's former bioweapons research facility, Porton Down. That's not to mention the burial pits of infected animals with up to 100 corpses in each, or the unmarked grave of a woman who died while handling an infectious agent some decades ago. Quote, even when you bury an animal, you have to bury it at a good couple of meters down. If the area floods, the spores can float back up and earthworms in the soil can move it around, he says. Chillingly, there is a similar site much closer from comfort than the steppes of Central Asia. Gennard, a small island just off the coast of the Scottish Highlands. From 1922 to 1923, just one year, it was the epicenter of the UK's bioweapons program. The test involved tethering sheep in an open field of securing them in wooden frames and exposing them to large doses of anthrax. Once it was exploded over the island, another time it was dropped off from a plane. The sheep would start dying three days later. You can tell when an animal has died of anthrax. Just look for a bloated carcass with hemorrhaging, says Bailey. After which, their carcasses were carefully disposed of. The scientists burned the bodies and even dynamited the cliff over some to contain the contamination. Just the single set of experiments rendered the island so contaminated, initial efforts to clean it up failed and the site was abandoned. In the end, every inch of this British isle was sprayed with 280 metric tons of formaldehyde solution mixed with seawater. It was finally declared safe in 1990. Today the island can be accessed easily by boat though you'll have to convince someone to take you first. Thankfully, Vozrozhenie, or Resurrection, is not quite so accessible. Together, Middleton, Butler, and their team traveled across Kazakhstan to Kwanlandi, a nearby village on the mainland. The plan was to hire a boat to take them across the RLC and some guides. Naturally, the locals weren't exactly falling over themselves to visit the notorious island. Quote, They knew to stay away, says Middleton, and in the end they made an unlikely alliance with a gang of salvage seekers. The trip was delayed as the crew members were struck down by food poisoning. Hours after they were set to leave, a massive dust storm broke out engulfing the village in the RLC. Dust storms are common in the area, due to the fact that, well, all the water has evaporated because of the cotton. It was like the end of the world. We would have been in the middle of the storm in these rickety boats, says Butler. I don't think we would have survived. The next day they finally made it. The base is divided into two parts, the town of Kantubek, which was built to house scientists and their families, and the lab complex, which lies about 2 miles, or 3.2 kilometers, further south. And now, I'll switch over from the article to Nick Middleton's study, which is published in The Guardian, but that's a more lively one, kind of more useful for the show, as how we liked it. He told us about the situation in an article in The Guardian, but it's still a crazy matter to look into. And the next one is a large quote. I basically read you the whole Guardian article from 21st of April 2005 by Nick Middleton, who went there. I want to go there as well, if I survive my own conditions, that is, but this is one of the places that I would really want to visit. Quote, We approached the town in a long, straight road made of concrete sections. First side of the settlement is a series of skeletal rooftops in the distance. For a strange moment, it seems as if we are approaching a building site, but the rafters have been picked clean and stick up like the bare ribs of carcasses dying in the sun. This has been a military town built in 1954 to house a thousand people, research scientists and security personnel and their families, on an island of the Aral Sea. It was a secret base, known in authorized circles as Ralsk 7, not marked on any maps. 
This is because the Soviet Union was using Ireland for the open-air testing of biological weapons. On the edge of the town, we speed past a dump of rusting vehicles and other machinery, with white stencils cyrillic lettering still visible on some of the corroded flanks. The terrain here is uneven, a series of shallow craters. One of the hollows is full of discarded ammunition in the cases of shells and the ends of missiles poking out of the earth. Abandoned in the early 1990s after the collapse of the USSR, these are the forgotten remains of the Cold War. But it's not quite forgotten by all. Lures from the mainland, now part of independent Kazakhstan, make occasional chips scavenge any useful scraps they can find in the desolate buildings. I had presented a group of these men to let me tag along. Seclusion was the key to the secret activities conducted in this out-of-the-way spot. Located 3,500 kilometers from Moscow in the middle of remote island sea surrounded by sparsely populated desert deep in the heart of Central Asia, the island was the perfect proving ground for a deadly array of airborne microbes. The name of this place, Vozhrozhenye, appealed for me for its bitter irony. It means Resurrection Island, or Rebirth. The biological agents tested here included plague, anthrax, and smallpox. Those were the ones I had heard of. The other said Atlantic names. Q fever, tularanemia, botulinium, and Venezuelan equine encephalitis. Some had been genetically modified to make them resistant to existing medication. The island had been chosen in part because of geographical isolation. Fast patrol boats guarded Vosdrogenia against intruders throughout the decades of testing. The insular location also prevented the transmission of dangerous microorganisms to neighboring mainland areas, bad animals or insects. And the surrounding stretches of water were considered wide enough to prevent biological agents from being blown to the mainland. Not anymore. The waters of the Aral Sea have been receding for the past 50 years, sucked away by irrigation schemes. As this level has declined, the island has grown. In 1960s it was about 200 square kilometers. Today, the Resurrection Island is more than 10 times that size. In fact, it is no longer an island. The Aral has shrunk so much that Resurrection is today connected by a land bridge to the southern coast in Uzbekistan. Authorities in both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, which share the former island's territory, do not encourage visitors. Almost all the agents responsible for the deadly diseases tested on Resurrection are quickly destroyed or exposed to ultraviolet light. The island's sparse vegetation, hot desert climate and sandy soil, which reaches summer temperatures of 60 Celsius, all sharply reduce the possibility that pathogenic microorganisms can survive. The important exception is anthrax, a spore that outlives all the others. It can persist in soil for a very long time, and if any spores reach the lungs, the chance of death is usually greater than 90%. A United States team visited Rebirth Island, Resurrection Island, depends on the translation. After September 11, 2001, concerned that terrorists might find something useful and ostensibly to clean it up. But nobody I spoke to before leaving for Kazakhstan knew exactly what the Americans had done. And to all American listeners, yeah, this is one of your conspiracy theories. The CIA came there. It's confirmed it's been CIA. The CIA has come to the Resurrection Island, to the most secluded place on the Earth, one of the most deadliest places even deadlier than Chernobyl, and done something there and picked samples and survived. Well, as much as I like the United States and capitalism, understand that in this world we live in a gray and gray morality instead of black and white. That much I learned in the States. However, it is bizarre that yes, this island was visited by the CIA and they picked up shit. 
This is a shout out, by the way, to the Baked in the Wake podcast. Do an episode on this. As one expert explained, it took more than 40 years to decommonate Guirnard. They pumped formaldehyde over the entire island. You have to kill every single spore and they can live for centuries. The United States spending a few months on the Vozrozhenie cleanup wasn't good enough for him. So I was taking no chances. Lurus looked me over with interest when I approached wearing a protective jumpsuit, rubberized, over boots and a face mask. I profit spare suits brought along just in case. But there were no takers. Weeds and struggling bushes lined the concrete pathway past the chipped walls and broken windows of the derelict building. A better road sign, international one for children crossing, leans drunkenly as we pass what looks like a playground. Doors hang limply from hinges, opening the way to interiors, hacked to pieces by looters. In spite of the damage, the buildings still have the air of places that had been deserted in a hurry. Books lie open in the floors and pictures still hang on the walls. Down in the research halls, on a corridor in one of the laboratory buildings, rooms are full of electrical apparatus or equipped with workbenches and medical cages. One room contains a bed with the sheets still on. Above a poster offers pictorial reminders of the importance of wearing all the necessary protective clothing. The sheets are rumpled as if the occupant had risen one morning and forgotten to make his bed. Back out in the sunshine, the gutted remains of a small building are still littered with petri dishes and glass test tubes. It doesn't have a roof, and the rafters have been burnt but scattered across the floor and neat stacks along the lines of metal shelving. Most of the glassware isn't damaged. This is not a happy episode. There was no way of telling what falcon concussions they contained. So much for the cleanup operation. Obviously the CIA picked the secret Soviet deck. And maybe it's in your water. Maybe it's not. But something is out there. This is one of the conspiracy theories which is just plainly true. I mean, Soviet abandoned biological weapons facility. CIA comes to it, leaves it untouched. Yeah. Doesn't get much better than this. The problem is that if this gets to the mainland, we all die. Researchers at Resurrection Island used to joke that the condemned monkeys were the luckiest inhabitants of the USSR because they lived on fresh fruit. You know, because the lions are a thing. Bananas, oranges, and apples were rare delicacies for most human residents of the Soviet Union, but a test animal had to remain in prime condition right up to its last breath usually taken strapped to a pole out in the killing field just to the south of where it was. The cream of the south. The cream of the Soviet science, those who conducted the atmospheric trials, lived on hunks of bread and fatty sausage. Nothing else. <laughs> they were fed worse than their own test atom. Welcome to the worker's paradise. And here the author says, I stand still for a moment to listen. There are no sounds whatsoever. Nothing. No birds. Just an eerie silence. No animals. Nothing. Everyone is dead. It is truly a deathly hush. Paradoxical for a place called the Rebirth Island. It is a dead island. An island of death that will kill you if you go there. It is an example of the Soviets dead. It sounds like from a horror movie, but you have to remember that. I might speak about the good things now and then, but this is what could have happened to all of us. Human life was useless in the Soviet Union, and nothing ever changes. I'm going to quote Ron Perlman from Fallout series, but war. War never changes. But still, that is not it of the Resurrection Island. And finally, I want to bring you the story of Nikita Markarkenko, which was an Aussie author 
Well, he brings a great example of all of this situation. There's an eerie absolute silence. I'm at a dead city in the middle of the Dead Sea. It feels like I'm standing in a post-apocalyptic movie set. No people, no animals. Zombies? Probably. Sand everywhere. This is real, and I'm one of the first people allowed to set foot on Arisk 7. You won't find this chilling ghost town on the map. The secret city was well guarded by the Soviet Union. But now you can visit Arisk 7 on the mysterious island of resurrection if you can stomach the journey and what you'll see when you get there. Sorry, my heart's acting up, and I'm really hard to record this episode. Please uh, do help, though. <clears throat> if you can stomach the journey and what you'll uh, see when you get here, because not only the island is suited in the environmental catastrophe that is the dried-up Aral Sea of the border of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, it was also the former Soviet testing site for biological weapons. Visiting here is a shocking glimpse into the Cold War history and a stark look of the damage industry can inflict on the planet. From the 1960s to 1980s, Vozrozhenia, or Resurrection, or Rebirth, was a fully equipped fortress ready to strike back at, quote, capitalist sharks, end quote, as Soviet newspapers called NATO countries. But before that, 1940s, the Soviet government began testing anthrax, the plague, tularemia, and other biological weapons in preparation for a possible Third World War, and it was all stored in the ground in the middle of Uzbekistan, a great place to hide secrets. The city of Farajsk 7, planned for 1,500 inhabitants, had a school, restaurants, military base, and a laboratory, and an airport, and a harbor. There was a disco and a cinema, end quote. Plus food supplied directly from Moscow, recalls Dmitry Itsopin, who was a soldier on the island from 1987 to 1989. We took part in biological weapons testing at the island. We thought we were making a useful thing, serve our homeland. This is what our political instructors were telling us, end quote. During a 24-hour period in 1982, Russian soldiers left for Vozrozhenia Island, Resurrection Island. Their quick evacuation meant that much was left behind, equipment, facilities, trucks, cars, and documents. However, they took their Kalashnikov rifles with them and burned the tanks and armored personal carriers. Visitors to the island will see these burnt-out shells of military might, plus the abandoned buildings where Cold War-era relics exist, such as the menu of a local restaurant or a list of soldiers going on vacation. Don't forget to take a selfie under Lenin's slogan together for the victory of communism, the article's author says, even though I hate it so much. As for people, you might spot scavengers hunting for old equipment and metal. Meanwhile, nature is reclaiming the island, like the native sub shrubs overlooking buildings and concrete blocks, and erasing some of the human tracks from its surface. Environmentalists are calling for the protection of the unique fauna, which includes about 127 species, such as the rare pink flamingo, Central Asian turtle, and saiga antelope. Uzbekistan started to open its formerly secret places for tourists after the death of President Islam Karimov in 2016. Resurrection Island isn't an official tourist destination yet, but it could be, says Yusuf Kalamov, a local scientist and president of the Union for Defense of the RLC and Amudarya. He compares it to other popular extreme tourism locations, like a Pripyat ghost town in Ukraine. The problem is, in Pripyat you're safe, there you're not. The RLC is dead, the stories are dead. And when animals come cross over to the mainland, well, if you want to make a Fallout game, this is where you go. I'm sorry for my bad heart situation. I'm sorry for the fact that I'm literally begging you for money. But I have to in a way. Because I want to go there.
I'm going to give you the full story. And I'm thanking you for listening to this episode because this island in the Sea, the Resurrection Island, is probably where the next catastrophe is going to come from. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Survive on, comrades. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.